Can everyone hear? No? Yep. Oh, there we are. Good morning, everybody. How is everybody today? You look great, too. Thank you for being here. And thank you, Dennis, for sharing your testimony. That was a great word. This morning, we're gathered today to look at the second half of Romans chapter 14. Jeff Jenkins did a wonderful job last week working through the first half of that chapter. Um, Before we get too far into the word, though, and into the message, I have a simple yet meaningful question. Have you ever used the right thing, the right tool, in the wrong way? I have. I saw all the men's faces get like, oh boy, we're fought out. We're called out here. Not too long ago, Tuesday night, I was sitting around the dinner table with my family discussing some of the more funny highlights from my childhood, but really the stepping stones of challenges that I threw in the way of my parents in raising me. My mind immediately goes to the garage at the house I grew up in. Allow me to give you a few examples as to why my mind goes there and how I personally had used some tools or some things, the right tool for the job, in the wrong way. I can remember being six, seven, eight, something younger like that. In one Christmas, I had received a little toolkit for, for, from Santa, from my parents, or from my grandmother, rather. And um, I was excited because it was a cool little toolkit. It was a flashlight that opened up, and it held like a little socket wrench set, and a hammer, and some screwdrivers, and all of those things. And not only was I excited for the gift, I knew I was excited to be in the garage with my dad and to learn how to use every single one of these tools for their designated purpose. All that excitement aside, I still use the tools the wrong way. (laughs) I remember there was a little hammer, little enough to fit into a flashlight about this big, and I decided, much like Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption, that I was going to slowly chisel my way out of the basement and tunnel out of my house. (laughs) Much to my surprise, as I was pounding on this little cinder block, which is the foundation of my parents' house, I got very quiet, which usually indicated to my parents that I was getting into trouble. So I remember my mom (laughs) coming down the steps and my dad coming down in their face to see that I had used these tools with the designed purpose for exactly the wrong purpose. Clearly, I didn't learn much forward to 14, 15, 16, just before I was driving on my own. I had a good friend who lived in Willowick. His name was Jordan. And boy, did we always get into trouble. Gasoline, gasoline is a great tool. It can power a vehicle. It can transport you from point A to point B. Much can be done with the fuel, gasoline. However, one can get in much trouble with the fuel, gasoline. I remember a funny saying my mom used to say when I was growing up, Alex, don't play with fire, don't play with matches, you'll wet the bed. (laughs) Not much value there other than the lesson, don't play with fire, it's not safe. I didn't learn. I can remember saying one night sitting by a bonfire with my good friend, I'm going to go get the gas can. We're going to see how big we can get this fire. 
I neglected to remember that though, pour gasoline onto a fire from said vessel, the flame tends to follow the source in which the fuel is coming from. Quite soon after, we had a gas can on fire, some little bit of scurrying around, making sure everything's okay, but the purpose still remains. When we use the right tool for the wrong purpose, certainly a little bit of danger and some negative consequences loom not too far away. Beyond that, it's a miracle that my parents had the patience to raise me and get me to this point, let alone still love me and can laugh about these events that occurred in my childhood. That's neither here nor there. Again, both of these tools purpose if a hammer in the hand of a construction worker or an artisan or a craftsman, that hammer can do amazing things. It can build a structure. It can solidify the foundation that we're sitting on rather than slowly chip away at it. Just like gasoline in a vehicle, in a lawnmower, in many things can give us the capability to do things with a little bit more ease, with a little bit more fancy as we develop. Now, how does this relate today to the message that Paul is bestowing upon the Romans in chapter 14, specifically the second half? The Apostle Paul, likewise, argues that it's possible to use the right thing in the precisely wrong way. He applies this adage to our Christian liberty— our freedom as a Christian, based on Christ going to the cross, he applies this concept to it when he talks about our freedom. Previously in Romans 14, 1 through 12, Paul stated that we are absolutely free to decide for ourselves on non-essential issues, including but not limited to eating, drinking, dancing, days of the week, the list goes on. We learn to be slow to judge others, yet be quick to judge ourselves. Jeff Jenkins, like I had said earlier, did a wonderful job bringing these points to light last week in his message. And now we find ourselves at the latter half, beginning in verse 13. Now, in these verses, Paul presents the other side of the coin. Our Christian liberty, or freedom, in that those who are free to enjoy their liberty are also held responsible for potentially having a poor or detrimental effect on other believers. Followers of the Lord, as followers of the Lord, we must recognize that our liberty and our freedom based on Christ going to the cross comes with a great amount of responsibility. I think to Superman, with great power comes great responsibility. This passage serves as a reminder of this well-grounded truth. We're called to handle our liberty and freedom. How are we called to handle our liberty and freedom as believers? The answer, as you soon will find out, and for some of us, as we will kind of hmm, find out, because this isn't an easy text to conceptualize and apply to our life, but the answer is, that this idea of freedom and our liberty as Christians requires an immense amount of care. And furthermore, it requires love and intentional faith and a, a quick willingness 
to come alongside others and to help them along in their faith. We'll find out that liberty as a Christian must be balanced in that it's limited by our love and it's supplemented with our faith. Now, without further ado, we're going to get into this passage and we're going to see that Paul offers three direct warnings to not only the Romans, but to everybody and every believer as we read through this text. He offers these three rather distinct warnings that all come back to the same central topic of this Christian liberty and our freedom that we gain in Christ. But before we get too far into the word, I would just mirror what Pastor Tim had said as he was praying. Allow the Lord to give you open eyes, open ears, and an open mind, as this topic isn't always easy. Certainly for me as a believer, it's not easy to hear that, yeah, I was given all of this awesome freedom by Jesus going to the cross, but now I have to limit it? What? I don't get to indulge and enjoy in the behaviors that I feel not convicted about because of other believers? It's kind of hard to conceptualize that message. Furthermore, it's hard to put it into play in our life, and even furthermore, it's hard for me to tell you all from the word, hey, don't do this, but I'm going to tell you what to do. So join me in prayer. Father, and you're, uh, you're so, so awesome that you can take a person like me and use me for your, for your purpose. <clears throat> Father, I, as well as most of us here, are weak, and um, we're in need of your strength, and we're feeble to think that we can do this thing called life on our own without your word and without your direction. Father, help me get this right. Help me deliver a message that brings people not to me or not to the topic, but certainly just toward you. You are so good, and we're so thankful that we get to gather here, and we get to listen to your word, and we get to put this into practice in our lives. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Well, I thought in the first service I would write down here what page it was on in the Bibles provided, so happy hunting, because I forgot. Um, But we are going to turn to Romans chapter 14 in the latter half, starting in verse 13. Do not cause one another to stumble. Verse 13 states, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to place a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. 
Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone who makes another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not see, proceed from faith is sin. That's a pretty weighty topic to be, scu- to be discussed over meat, potatoes, wine, what have you. However, much like we discussed, the proper tool in the right hands can do great things. Paul infamously and with the majesty of God speaking through him takes something as small as eating certain foods, abstaining or eating or drinking of certain beverages, and he uses it to unravel this wonderful principle about what our Christian liberty and what our freedom is as a believer in Christ. With that being said, and like I had mentioned, Paul furnishes three warnings to believers and to the church. The first of which is to not hinder your brother and sister in Christ. He affirms this point um, that we must limit our Christian liberty because not all believers have the same freedoms on non-essential issues. In verse 13, he writes, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Within this verse, there's a classic play on words that Paul uses quite frequently in his letters. The verb, the same verb that's translated as decide in the Hebrew is also translated as judge. This verse then, applying that wordplay, can literally be translated as, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather judge this, to not place an obstacle or stumbling block in the way of your brother. Paul also says above in the beginning of chapter 14 to stop judging others on their opinions. We must ask ourselves what we're more concerned about. What our brother and sister is doing or what we are doing ourselves. If only we were preoccupied with our own conduct as much as we were with everybody else's, how much further along would we be? How much deeper in our faith, in our relationship with Christ, would we be when we cease to be so concerned with our brother and sister and become more concerned with ourselves? Here, however, Paul is concerned that those who have liberty, who have freedom from the cross, protect those who don't. In this context, a strong believer who puts an obstacle in the path of a newer or greener or potentially weaker believer, that might set him back temporarily. But even more, that might destroy his relationship or her relationship with the Lord. We require a sensitive conscience in uncovering what our convictions are when we approach and when we live alongside other believers. 
We must not tempt our fellow greener or younger brother or sister in Christ to sin by partaking in the same liberty or the same freedom that we have, and then they thereby violate their own conscience. We must remember that we are either a stepping stone or we're a stumbling block. Our liberty, again, is to be balanced, limited by love and supplemented with our faith. Paul then moves into this concept of clean versus unclean. Paul builds upon this same argument about causing one another to stumble by discussing this clean versus unclean. He states in verse 14, the beginning, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing in and of itself is unclean. Paul's not saying here that anything goes and that everything is good and do whatever you want and it's all great. It's a big old party. However, he's absolutely confident, as mirrored in verse 5 in the beginning section of chapter 14, that nothing is unclean in and of itself. It's critical to understand that Paul is discussing here foods, meats, vegetables, wine, dancing maybe, um, days of the week. We're not discussing acts of adultery, stealing, having hate for your brother or sister in Christ. We're talking more so, and Paul is speaking more so, of the more non-essential things that seem to cause argument and confusion about conviction and freedom in the early church and even still today in the church. No food or drink in and of themselves is unclean. Rather, it is how these things are used that leads to sin. I think it's Mark in chapter 5 who states, nothing by going into the body of a believer is unclean. This verse leads us to a shocking truth because anybody who thinks what is inherently clean, if they think that it is unclean, then it's unclean. And not only are you supposed to not partake in what you have now found by conviction to be unclean, as brothers and sisters in Christ and one another, we should help you along and limit our liberty by not partaking in what you feel or what someone feels is unclean. We're called, again, to be a stepping stone and not a stumbling block. Many believers can become caught between tradition and preferences and what the Bible really prohibits and what it doesn't prohibit. This reality should do one thing, and that is to drive a deeper desire into the heart of every single believer to dig in and uncover the meaning of the truth in the Bible. Instead of pursuing a menial arguments of over-conviction or what our liberties may and may not permit, shouldn't we not then take that energy and focus it into uncovering what the Lord is saying in his word? If our potential actions or behaviors will influence a fellow believer to contradict their conscience or cause them to sin, we should lovingly abstain from whatever it is that we are doing. Again, Our liberties are to be balanced in that they are limited by love 
and supplemented with faith. In verse 15, Paul goes on, but he changes things up a little bit. And as a little bit of an English nerd, there's something funny in here in the way that the text is written. Paul switches to the second person singular. He says, your. Not his, not the people that time, not someone named Joe. His, your, your brother. And he provides greater clarity and more of a conviction. He says in verse 15, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That's a lot of weight. Eating something correlating to destroying the work of God. Destroying the one for whom which Christ died. That's a lot. What do we do with that type of information? How do we apply that to our life? And Paul through his verbiage and the way he structures this verse, gives us precisely the answer. The term destroy, again, because I'm a nerd and like these things, the term destroy is only used nine times in all of Paul's writing. In all of his epistles, he uses that term nine times. And in comparison to the volumes of work that he has done, that's relatively small. It's a rare occurrence. Twice two of those occurrences occur in this passage alone. As readers, we can begin to see the weight of this concept through not only the rare use of the term, but what Paul does with it. When another Christian sees you doing what his own conscience, uh, sorry, what his own conscience condemns, it grieves him or causes him pain. When he then proceeds to do that act himself in which he is convicted, then he's sinning. We have a huge influence on our brother and sister in Christ based on our personal convictions and how we interpret and find what God has either prohibited or is not prohibited in our freedom. Now, some scholars would argue that the Greek word for destroy would refer to some type of eternal destruction or eternal damnation. Yet the word here does not mean, or the phrase here does not mean, oh, this person was made to go to hell or made to lose his salvation. Rather, Paul is talking about a loss of peace, assurance, and our ability as believers to conduct effective ministry, to collaborate with one another, to uphold one another, and to spur one another on. He lays out two motivations for our conduct. One, we have to love our brother and sister in Christ. And two, Christ's death on the cross is so critical in that love. If we are believers, we ought to love one another. Pretty plain and simple. Furthermore, Christ's sacrifice should allow us to demonstrate sensitivity. If Jesus was willing to die for believers and for people, certainly we should be willing to make the smallest of sacrifices. Remember, our liberty must be limited by love and supplemented with faith. 
Some believers, for whatever reason, can't see themselves walking freely in a certain area that they have been brought up to think is wrong, or maybe that's how they perceive God's word, and they have difficulty doing so. Thus, we are responsible to be sensitive and thoughtful towards such believers. Now, given this is a lot of material, and it's not really the clearest of concepts, allow me to provide an example. But before I provide an example, I have to give you a bit of the backstory. It is critical in this example that you understand within the walls of my marriage, I am not the saver. I love to spend money, chase deals, shop till I drop, whatever it is. I inherently am not the saver of the money that the Lord has blessed us with which is even more ironic because I work at a bank. (laughs) Katie, on the other hand, is the saver. She's the one who sits and says something similar to my parents when I was a child and had money burning a hole in my pocket. She says, if you still want it in a week, let's get it in a week. Let's talk about it in a week. Fair, she's the saver. So to the example, if I firmly believe that a purchase that I want to make is wise stewardship and is a good use of the money that the Lord has blessed us with. Yet my wife feels or is worried that the Lord will not approve. I should have no problem sacrificing my liberty in thinking that I want to purchase this to satisfy and to develop and for the sake of my wife not purchase it. Does that make sense? So in hindsight, Paul's first warning is, don't hinder your fellow brother or sister in Christ. His second warning comes rather quickly. We are called not to hinder our own testimony. It's pretty clear, and without much assessment, the world is always watching us believers. And since the world is always observing Christians, we ought to be wise with our use of our freedom and our liberty. Paul writes in verse 16, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. The good thing, or the good things not to be spoken of as evil, refers to the liberty, in this case, to eat meat, to partake in certain drinks, or to do anything that could be interpreted by another believer or someone who doesn't believe at all to be immoral. Paul is saying here that unbelievers can legitimately speak of our freedom in Christ as evil if it results in the fall of another Christian or the compromise of our own personal testimony. However, as much as we dislike it, as much as that capability to sully our own testimony is an actual thing, the world still watches. When we use our liberty indiscriminately or with discrimination or however we use our liberty, the world is definitely prone to shake their head in either one way or the other and maintain in some regard that "Mm, they're just a whole bunch of hypocrites. I have often heard that many believers' biggest reason for, not, for ignoring God and ceasing to pursue any type of relationship with him comes from nothing that they did on their own, but what they observed another believer do. 
Now, certainly they might have the wrong perspective at times or not see something as clearly as they should have observed it. But many times our liberty can, in fact, harm our ability to tell the world about the Lord and to adequately and properly live out his gospel. What we once intended for good and what really is good in our lives and can be now spoken of as evil, if not done properly. Perhaps this is why many people say, eh, why be a Christian? Why be a follower of the Lord? People would then see that we don't even get along with each other in our own convictions. Yet they, by some grace or some epiphany, would then step in and get some type of peace or happiness when we as believers can't even agree on convicting items. While we may argue that we have Christian liberty to do certain things, it seems fit to exercise a hefty amount of caution. We must think clearly, and twice, potentially three times, before we act, as our testimony and the testimony of others can be on the line. Again, liberty must be limited with love and supplemented with faith. The next point that Paul makes is how we can all too easily miss the bigger picture. In the next verse, verse 17, Paul explains where true life is for the average Christian, for the believer, by saying, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Of course, the kingdom of God, he refers to the realm or place in which God is king, he reigns. And we, his believers, his followers, are quickly there standing behind him. Yet, often we are prone to think that God's kingdom primarily involves what a person does or does not do. This is precisely how the Pharisees lived and walked, making a big deal of menial and far smaller external things. I heard it said by one of the professors in my program for biblical studies, he had stated that the kingdom of God is not mainly a matter of the external, the outside, but of the eternals and what happens inside. In God's kingdom, freedom comes from what he tells you on the inside, not from what people say or do or yell or yell and throw things on the outside. Yet we spend so much time worrying about what people may think, and rightfully so, that caution is good, but we spend far too much time concerned with the opinions of the external, rather than digging in and finding out what God has to say for himself. However, here if Paul is asking a question, how can you fight about such small things and miss the bigger picture? Overall, Paul is conveying that eternals are righteousness, peace, and the best part is the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. Here, righteousness refers to ethical righteousness, or behaviors that are pleasing to God, behaviors that taken our liberty and freedom are pleasing to God. Peace refers to the harmony that people the communication, the harmony that believers should manifest and live out among one another. And the result, again, 
of all of these things is joy, an immeasurable joy. I don't know about you, but I like joy. And lastly, we find that we will be acceptable to God and approved by man if we successfully limit our liberty with love and supplement it with faith. Paul writes in verse 18, Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. If we have a healthy balance of enjoying our liberty, limiting it when it's appropriate, and consistently supplementing it with our intentional faith, we will not only be acceptable to God, but to other believers. Again, I don't know about you, but I like to be accepted. I like to be in that green area of good. When we live out our conscience before God, we are accepted by God. This is illustrated in the beginning of chapter 14 and verse 3 too. And if we do not abuse our liberty around others and other believers, we are approved by our peers. In other words, perhaps they would respect us for our restraint and our genuine concern for them. When we embrace kingdom priorities, our service to Jesus is pleasing to God and justifiable in the sight of others even to those who may disagree with us. Our self-control may open the door of ministry and witness and allow us to share the gospel with the rather large and the rather vast unbelieving community. These, among many other things, are just a few of the awesome outcomes and a few pieces of the equipment that God gives us when we limit our liberty with love and supplement it with our faith. And now that Paul has issued these first two warnings, we see the third coming into play. The third and final warning he offers to the Romans in this passage is to not hinder the church. We've already discussed how not to hinder our brother and sister in Christ, and we've already discussed how not to hinder our personal testimony. But now Paul takes even a wider look at things and discusses how we are not to hinder the church or the overall body of Christ as a whole. He gets to this point in verse 19 by focusing on our pursuit of peace and mutual upbuilding. As I've stated, that one of our highest priorities is building up the church, coming alongside our fellow believers, believers and spurring them on to do great and wonderful things inside of the Lord. Paul shifts gears here in a few transitional verses and moves us from a negative to a positive emphasis. He moves from what we shouldn't be doing to what we should be doing or what we should be pursuing. In verse 19, he states, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. For one to pursue requires an immense amount of activity and intentionality for performing said activity. I find that many times when I'm up here and I'm blessed with the opportunity to share a message with you, my beloved church family, I often find myself at a point of intentionality. And it's not just because I like that topic. I do like that topic. It's because that is what the Lord and what Paul is consistently reminding people that they have to be. We have to be intentional in our walk with the Lord if we're going to be intentional 
in displaying our Christian liberty to people who might not have the same convictions as us. Again, as the English nerd I am, and the biology nerd, as you learned last time, and really I'm just a big nerd, the Greek term for building up is employed in this verse and is utilized as almost a construction term. This is observed by readers when the process of making a building or stronger or solidifying or making a builder stronger in other areas of Scripture. Our goal then here, and for Paul's use for this terminology, is to strengthen and solidify the church by protecting our fellow believers from violating their conscience or violating what they may feel convicted about with our personal liberty and freedom. I've said it once to this morning, I've said it quite a few times, we are so called to have balance in our liberty and freedom in that it's limited by love and it's supplemented with our own personal faith and our walk with the Lord. We see again, Paul used this terminology of not destroying in verse 20. He states, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything indeed, oh boy. That's what I get for talking with my hands. So let's start that over again. Verse 20. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone who makes another stumble by what he eats. Again, we observe this concept of destroying or tearing down. Both building up and tearing down are construction metaphors. Paul uses this verb destroy both here and in verse 15 previously when talking about the danger and talking about the negative consequences of destroying a greener, younger, weaker Christian. I don't really like the terminology weaker Christian, but in doing research and preparing for this message, that seems to be what the commentary um, uses. However, I like to say newer, greener, maybe a little bit more mature in their faith. Um, and here we expand on this topic and we see that now not only can we be such a hindrance that we destroy our brother and sister in Christ, but now we can destroy all of the work of God as a whole. Do not it, and if we do not do so lovingly and with supplementation of faith, limit our liberty and freedom. Paul reminds us again that it's not worth indulging ourselves in liberty when these are the potential outcomes. Yes, as verse 14 states, all things are clean. However, to a fellow believer, one who is maybe newer, it may be unclean and thus present a hindrance. So where does this leave us? How does all of this primordial concept of what we should eat and shouldn't eat and what should be our conviction and what shouldn't be our conviction, how does this overall idea or concept of Christian liberty or freedom, how do we put the pen to the paper and how do we put it into practice? Just like Paul gives three warnings to the Romans about the potential outcomes of not limiting our liberties and not being um, as supplementary with our faith in our liberty, 
he offers three solutions or practical applications that we can every day place in our life. First and foremost, be considerate. Verse 21 reads, It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Paul urges the strong to abstain in their liberty, not because their example might lead the weak to drink in excess or do what they are not supposed to do, but because their example might lead the newer, the greener, the less mature believer to do what they were raised or what they feel is not right. Thus, they violate their conscience, and like he says earlier, leads them to sin. Paul himself is any particular food or drink to avoid causing spiritual growth problems in his fellow believer. Certainly, we should be willing to do Another example for you. Would we not willingly alter our pace of walking if we had a toddler or someone tiny walking next to us? How much more would we be willing to alter our Christian walk for the benefit of a weaker brother or sister in Christ whom we are leading? We must, and this requires sensitivity and respect when we're talking about conviction. Again, liberty must be limited by love and supplemented with faith. Paul's second application is a call to be conscious. In the first part of verse 22, Paul states, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Pretty simple. Pretty understandable. However, it's not in the terms that you would think. It's not, hey God, I have to keep my relationship with you secret. It's between you and I. If we are engaged in certain activities that are not clearly prohibited by the teaching of Scripture, then we should be confident in our thinking that they are right. We should be confident in keeping our walk with the Lord between himself and us. However, if we entertain any doubt that the goodness of said activity or negative consequences that the said activity could bring, then we should give them up. We as believers are to let God and his word be the sole basis for our faith and nothing else. We must be sure that what we do is not because of pride or wanting to flaunt or show off how free we are or what we can do and some other believers can't, or what we feel called or led that we can do and other believers don't have the same calling or the same conviction. This leads us to our third and final application that Paul gives from this passage. We are called to be consistent. The second half of verse 22 through verse 23 states, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubt is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We can't help but be happy or blessed if, in exercising our Christian liberty and freedoms, we do not ourselves by harming another. You are blessed if you exercise your freedom in such a way that is free of doubt. 
when we arrive at the conclusion that something is right, unless we've received solid confirmation to the contrary, we should not alter or doubt our convictions. Doubts concerning beliefs will lead only to further confusion and dismay. However, consistency in belief will yield blessing and happiness. In this context, if a person does what he believes to be wrong, even though it is not wrong in and of itself, it may be clean. If for whatever reason we conceive it to be unclean or doubt the goodness of it, it becomes sin for not only us, but for the brother that we have no regard of their conviction. Whatever is done without the conviction that God has approved is by definition sin. As we know, God has called us to a life of faith. Trust is the willingness to put our life, our whole life, before God and to seek his heavenly approval. Any doubt concerning an action immediately removes that act from the category of what is acceptable. For a believer, not a single decision or action can be good, which one does not think they can justify on the grounds of their conviction or on the grounds of what, of what the Lord has said about their freedom, the text of the Bible. So this puts us at the end of our sermon, the end of this message. And I have patience as it did run over a little bit, but I would issue you a challenge this week. I would encourage you to go back into the Word and read through Romans 14 with open ears, open eyes, and an open mind. And I would encourage you to find something that leaps off of that page that either may illuminate a portion in your life or a place or peace in your life that your freedom is not limited by love and is not with faith and may indeed cause another brother or sister in Christ to falter or hinder. I would encourage you as you return to your church and as you return to your engagement and activity with the body of Christ that you would have a conscious, consistent, and a tactful approach to your freedoms and your liberties that Christ gave us all by the cross. As I read through scripture, I often find things where I'm like, are you sure, God? not really comfortable with this. I don't really know how to approach this. I don't really like to see the gut check that you're trying to give me through this passage. However, I would encourage you, and like I would encourage myself, to see past that. With that being said, let me pray for you for this week. Father, you're so good. And we're so thankful that while as undeserving we are, you still sent your son to die for us. Father, we're thankful for our liberty in you and our freedom in you, Father. However, give us a heart that limits that freedom in such a way, in such an appropriate way, that encourages and spurs on our fellow believer to pursue you even deeper. That would stir the church to pursue you even deeper, Father. 
I ask that you walk alongside us this week as you remind us to be considerate, to be conscious, and to be consistent, Lord. It's only going to come from you. I'm thankful again for an opportunity to engage in some time with my church family and to talk about the nuts and bolts of your word and how it applies to our lives. Father, you are so good and we are so undeserving and we are so thankful. And Father, we're just grateful for you and we're thankful for your son. It's in your name we pray. Amen.